Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies... 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabiso Lukoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Tanzania's president-elect John Magufuli will be sworn in tomorrow as the country's fifth head of state. And the current president of the UN Security Council optimistic about peace talks between Israel and Palestine. At first up, the news with Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Gunmen have kidnapped a minister in Libya's Tripoli-based government, not recognized internationally, Mohamed Al-Ghada. Parliament accused a group linked to its own interior minister of being behind the abduction. Tripoli's planning minister was kidnapped on Monday and has yet to be released. Libya descended into chaos after the October 2011 ouster and killing of long-serving leader Muammar Gaddafi, with two governments vying for power and armed groups battling for control to control its vast energy resources. Journalists in Togo have slammed a new provision passed by Parliament which threatens imprisonment for anyone found guilty of flaunting the country's media regulations. Eight media organizations say the law, passed late on Monday night, undermined the existing code governing the industry. According to the new provisions, publishing false, malicious and potentially defamatory information, causing or raising the likelihood of a breach of peace, can now be punished with six months to two years in prison. Amnesty International says Cameroon's authorities must urgently reveal the whereabouts of a journalist who has been held in secret detention since his arrest three months ago. Ahmed Abba, a Hausa language correspondent for, for French radio, Radio France International, was arrested on July 28th while investigating the Boko Haram conflict in the north of the country. Amnesty International researcher in Central Africa, Aria Algeru. Alagrozi says there has not been any explanation at all why Ahmed Abba was arrested. He was brought to Yaounde and since then we have no news of him. So he's been held incommunicado for at least now three months. It is very, very concerning because this is totally illegal and against any human rights standard, national and international standard. The authorities didn't give any explanation so far and anyway, whatever the reason for his arrest is, he cannot justify secret and incommunicado detention. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is set to arrive in London for talks with British Prime Minister David Cameron. The visit has been criticized by many human rights groups who say it adds legitimacy to a regime that restricts freedom of speech and imprisons its opponents. Author and activist Adaf So'o Aif. I find it worrying as a citizen of both the UK and Egypt. I think it definitely sends the wrong message because the regime needs acceptance. And if it has acceptance when it's disappearing people from the streets and giving people ridiculous jail sentences and allowing people to die in prison for lack of medical attention, then that is definitely the wrong message. 
And finally, legal experts at the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, South Africa, have expressed mixed reactions to the outcome of hearing by a full bench of judges led by Chief Justice Lex Mpati, where the state sought for the appeals court to overturn Oscar Pistorius's culpable homicide conviction to murder. Legal commentator Brenda Wardler says she feels the trial was not rightly directed by the High Court with the kind of questions from the judges giving an indication of how the appeals court views their matter. Well, the possible outcome is that uh, this, the Supreme Court of Appeal might come back in their majority, I suspect, and essentially say that those were indeed questions of law, that uh, the trial court misdirected and misapplied uh, principles of dolus eventualis, uh, circumstantial evidence was not taken into account holistically. If we have regard to the questions which uh, the judge actually posed around Captain Mangena's evidence, Uh, that Judge Masipa applauded him and yet uh, continued to disregard very, very crucial evidence by him. So in all likelihood, they will come back and say, yes, those are indeed questions of law. Let us then um, entertain uh, the arguments. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Tsinsi. Thank you, Anele. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, Tanzania's president-elect, John Magufuli, will be sworn in tomorrow and become the country's fifth head of state. Magufuli, who won October's general elections with 58% of the votes cast, has promised to speed up economic growth and development in the East African nation. The 56-year-old teacher and industrial chemist ran on a platform of anti-corruption. Sarah Kimani reports. Dr. John Magufuli's ruling Chama Chama Pinduzi Party faced its toughest electoral challenge from the opposition in its half-a-century reign in power. Opposition candidate and former Prime Minister Edward Lowassa rejected the poll outcome, alleging massive rigging. Both candidates had promised to create more jobs and ensure economic growth. Tanzania is rich in mineral resources and has huge tracts of agricultural land. Magufuli is described as a no-nonsense, hands-on person with zero tolerance to corruption. Humphrey Polopole is a political analyst based in Tanzania. Uh, For sure there's not going to be business as usual within CCM and for sure there's not going to be business as usual within the civil service. Uh, I am very sure uh, the citizens are going to receive more uh, than they've been receiving now in terms of social services, economic services, but also generally their political life in terms of engagement. Um, Magufuli's track record, he's a doer, and he's uh, popularly known as a a caterpillar, you know, a person that really drives and, you know, uh, things around in the best interest of of the nation. Tanzanians will be looking to Magufuli to tackle unemployment and corruption that has dogged his predecessors two terms. Tanzania is East Africa's second largest economy. The country is a member of the East African Community, EAC, as well as the Southern African Development Community, SADC. 
Sarah Kimani. The current president of the UN Security Council says he will use every possible avenue to explore the possibility of a resolution on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. UK Ambassador Matthew Rycroft will lead the council during the month of November, just days after non-permanent member New Zealand circulated a draft resolution that could force the parties back to the negotiation table. Show and Bryce Peace reports. With regular violent clashes, particularly over concerns regarding the status quo of the revered Temple Mount, pressure is mounting on the Security Council to weigh in. UK Ambassador and November Security Council President Matthew Rycroft was asked what action he foresaw on the Palestinian-Israeli question in the month ahead. The last Security Council resolution on this issue was nearly seven years ago. Uh, So I don't want to overpromise uh, by saying for sure that there will be some product in the course of November. But what I do commit to is, to is to using every possible avenue to explore whether the time is right for any of the possible initiatives, including the New Zealand draft, which I think is a constructive and positive contribution to the debate. New Zealand circulated a draft resolution last week that condemns the escalating cycle of violence, declaring that a two-state solution can only be achieved through direct negotiations, while calling the suspension of peace talks unacceptable. It would call for an end to the expansion of Israeli settlements and for Palestine to refrain from taking matters to the International Criminal Court, while calling on the international community to assist the parties in preparing for negotiations. In my national capacity, as I said, the UK supports anything that will, that will bring peace in the Middle East uh, that bit closer. Uh, at some point, uh, we will need, I think, a new uh, so-called parameters resolution that will set out what the content of uh, the eventual settlement should look like from the perspective of the uh, international community. Uh, and we sh- will need a uh, timetable. Uh, including uh, some dates, and we will need a mechanism, some form of negotiating mechanism, some form of group that will bring together uh, the key, uh, the parties and the key members of the international community. Pressure has been building for a divided Security Council to fulfil its responsibilities for international peace and security by helping force the parties back to the negotiating table. Ambassador Rycroft hinted that some compromises would likely be part of any Security Council consensus on this question. You don't have to have all of those things in, in the single resolution. You could, have them, uh, you could have them separately, and there is a school of thought which, is, uh, uh, which makes a lot of sense to me, uh, which says that you need to keep out of the resolution the uh, timetable and the mechanism because those are the sorts of things which uh, could change. Uh, and the, in, the, in the parameters resolution itself, you should just stick with the, with the content. But clearly, uh, the parties will need to have some form of view about the totality of what the international community is saying, both in terms of the content and in terms of the timetable. Security Council resolutions are legally binding and could force the parties to act. With fears now that enmity and increased levels of distrust between the two sides could lead to yet another full-scale war. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. South Africa's Minister of Health, Aaron Mutsualedi, has called on parliamentarians to support intensified efforts to eradicate TB around the world. Mutsualedi urged members of the National Assembly to sign a pledge adopted in Barcelona in Spain last year, where parliamentarians committed to do everything they could to urge sustained action from governments to secure resources to combat TB. Joseph Masia reports. The first ever global 
TB Summit brought together MPs from around the world to galvanize the political will needed in the fight against TB. Mozzoledi says at the current rate, the world will only reach the target of 10 new TB infections per 100,000 people by the year 2180. He says one of the biggest problems facing the world today is that millions of people do not even know that they are infected. At present, there are 9 million people around the world who are believed to have TB, but only 6 million are known and some are on treatment. 3 million don't even know that they've got TB and we have to start a search for these people around the whole world. Not finding these people and not successfully treating them has resulted in a new and more scary form of TB. That is multi-drug resistant TB and also extreme drug resistant TB. Mutsualedi says to drive this vision, the Barcelona Declaration was adopted and is now in the form of a pledge. He added that 610 parliamentarians from 97 countries have joined the caucus and signed onto its pledge. He cited some of the clauses of the pledge. We demand that every patient, regardless of who they are, where they are, or their ability to pay, shall have access to quick, accurate diagnosis and high-quality treatment. And that TB diagnosis and treatment must never result in the impoverishment of patients or their families. Opposition parties were generally in support of the declaration and pledged to sign. But they raised concerns about what is being done to fight the disease. Sheikh Imam of the NFP said it was alarming that with its tiny population, South Africa is rated third behind China and India. Colleagues, recent reports from the World Health Organization indicate that South Africa is one of the countries with the highest burden of tuberculosis. Approximately 1% of our population develops active TB annually, and the World Health Organization estimates that up to 450,000 South Africans are currently suffering from tuberculosis. What is most alarming about the statistics is that South Africa is ranked third highest in the world as far as TB infections are concerned. The EFF and the DA were the only parties that objected to the minister's statement. EFF MP Saiseka Chiwane said government was not doing enough to hold those responsible for the spread of disease accountable. The relationship between TB and HIV has developed into a potent killing machine. It seems Koida or Odimwa are a wild ghost that seems not to be understood for their purpose and are also, need inform, are also not enforced by the National Department of Health to perform their duties as expected. Government should enforce police and legislation compliance by industry where TB has proved to be a serious problem, especially in the mining communities and the mines themselves. At the end of November, South Africa will play host to the second global caucus in Cape Town. I'm Joseph Musia in Parliament. This is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15.
Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. Amnesty International says Cameroon's authorities must urgently reveal the whereabouts of a journalist who has been held in secret detention since his arrest three months ago and give him access to a lawyer and his family. Journalist Ahmed Abba, a Hauser language correspondent for French radio Radio France International, was arrested on the 28th of July in the city of Marua while investigating the Boko Haram conflict in the north of the country. Ilaria Allegrosi, Amnesty International Central Africa researcher, says there has not been any explanation at all why Ahmed Abba was arrested. No, not yet anyway. Ahmed Abba, with the uh, correspondent for the French Radio France Internationale, was arrested in fact in, uh, in July in the city of Marua, which is the main city in the north of Cameroon, and was detained for uh, about 15 days in Marua, where he could actually uh, access to a lawyer and to his families and friends. However, 15 days later, he was brought to Yaounde, and since then, we have no news of him. So he's been held incommunicado for at least now three months. It is very, very concerning because this is totally illegal and against any human rights standard, national and international standard. What do you think is the reason that his lawyer and his family have been refused any contact with him? And why is he subject to this secret detention? Could it have anything to do with the fact that he was investigating Boko Haram activities? The authorities didn't give any explanation so far. And anyway, whatever the reason for his arrest is, he cannot justify secret and incommunicable detention. So we are asked the uh, Cameroonian authorities to give access to uh, a lawyer to his families and to uh, his uh, employer, the Radio France Internationale, and also to reveal the whereabouts of Ahmed Abba. Now, in Cameroon, I would have thought that it would be a violation of human rights to deprive anybody of his right, you know, to be brought promptly before an ordinary civilian court. Why is it that at this time it seems that the government of Cameroon is acting in this case with impunity? Well, you know, um, conditions of detention in Cameroon are of concern, not only for Amnesty International, but also for human rights organizations in Cameroon. And indeed, this has come under scrutiny for a while. So, for example, Amnesty International has documented the extremely poor conditions in Cameroonian detention centers for many years, and these include chronic overcrowding, inadequate food, lack of drinking water, and very long pre-trial detention and also incommunicable detention. The way of the rest of all the individuals suspected of supporting Boko Haram since now almost a year has uh, definitely aggravated these uh, conditions to um, very extreme level, especially in the prison in Marua uh, where Ahmed was detained for the first 15 days, as I said before. Now, apparently in September this year, Amnesty International met some detainees in Yaounde who reported having been ill-treated while being held, you know, without access to lawyers or families. But did they say anything about Ahmed Abba and how he is? 
We don't know anything, unfortunately, about uh, his detention in uh, Yaounde at the moment. We assume he's been held in Yaounde, but unfortunately the authorities have not revealed his whereabouts. That's why it is important for us to call on the Cameroonian authorities to reveal as soon as possible where he's been held and to give access to a lawyer. But the Cameroonian authorities, have they responded at all to this report from Amnesty International? The Cameroonian authorities have not responded to the many attempts that also Radio France Internationale to uh, ask for the whereabouts of uh, the journalist, his correspondent. So, so far, all the attempts have failed. Can't human rights organizations and civil society in Cameroon do anything to pressure the government to say something at least or release even Ahmed Abba? Amnesty International has done so, and also uh, Radio France International has done so, pushing the authorities to reveal the whereabouts of the journalist, to give access to a lawyer, and to do something about this. By the way, this is not the first case, and also other journalists have been arrested in Cameroon recently. For example, between August and September this year, a Nigerian, I mean like a, a journalist who was working in Nigeria and went to Cameroon for a report on the conditions of uh, Nigerian refugees in the far north region, was arrested for five days and then was released without charges. So the way Cameroon is handling journalists and is treating media practitioners is concerning at the moment. It is exactly 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. You're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the heads of the legislative, judicial and executive arms of state in South Africa will in future meet at least twice a year to discuss matters of concern. This was announced by the country's President Jacob Zuma who hosted Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng and parliamentary leaders Balek Ambete and Tandi Mudise at at his home in Cape Town. Zaline Merrington reports. Earlier this year, Chief Justice Mukhwing Mukhwing called for a meeting with the President following public attacks on the judiciary by ANC politicians. Allegations were made that some court verdicts were biased. President Jacob Zuma then met with members of the judiciary to address their concerns. The meeting with the Chief Justice and the Speaker of the National Assembly, Baleka Mbete, and the NCOP Chairperson, Tandi Modise, was an effort to strengthen relations. Zuma says they will have more such meetings. In the discussion, we have also uh, agreed that we need to meet at least twice a year. <clears throat> One of those meetings could have more of our colleagues who work with us in different arms so that we can discuss some of the issues we believe need to be discussed and harmonized in one form or the other. Chief Justice Mukhweng Mukhweng says it's important for the different arms of state to meet regularly to address burning issues before they spiral out of control. It afforded us the opportunity to reflect on the general health of our, of our constitutional democracy and... Um, the need has arisen for us to meet more often than we had in the past so that if there are matters of concern, we're able to tackle them before it is too late. So, yeah, I found it to have been a very fruitful meeting indeed. The leaders of Parliament, Speaker Baleka Mbete and Chairperson of the NCOP, Tandi Modise, agreed that the meeting was constructive. We indeed had an opportunity to look at how 
our constitutional dispensation is evolving, uh, the extent to which we all operate within the limits of what's expected of us in terms of being compliant in terms of the constitution. From the legislative side, it is important that we come back together. We are three legs of one government, one state. So as uh, we say, it was conducive. We're thinking that it can only benefit South Africa. And that report by Zaline Merrington. Changes to typical climate Climatic patterns in many parts of the world could mean that around 2 billion people will be battling hunger and malnutrition in the years ahead. That's according to the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, Hilal Alva, who says climate change remains a serious threat to food security. In December, the climate in December, the international community is meeting in Paris, France, in an attempt to agree on a legally binding deal which will keep rises in global temperatures to below 2 degrees Celsius. More from the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, Hilal Alva. Climate change poses a serious threat to food security in several ways. First of all, global warming is seriously affecting on the agricultural production is the number one. The other one is sea level rise, which is threatening the coastal regions, food security activities. Another one is the extreme weather events, which basically impact on the availability and accessibility of the food everywhere, basically in the world, but more seriously places that they are already under infrastructurally, not in a a good situation. How many people are at risk of being affected? Basically, climate change impacts on everyone else in everywhere, but some regions are much more seriously impacted. If we generalize who are the most under threat, I would put two or three billion people, which they are struggling with poverty and hunger and the malnutrition. Can you explain then the number today of a potential additional 600 million people which would be subject to malnutrition by 2080? There is a likelihood that uh, additional 600 million people will have a serious kind of hunger and malnutrition. Right now we have 795 million are chronically hungry and 2 billion people are malnourished right now as of today. But if in the future, because of the agricultural problems and because of the impact on the climate change, so the food will be expensive. Because food will be expensive, this will directly impact poor people around the world. You call for a change in agricultural production models from an industrial model to a transformative one. Can you explain what they are exactly? It's a very ironic relationship between climate change and the food security or agriculture because agriculture is also one of the main greenhouse gas emitters. So while climate change is impacting on agriculture, 
agriculture is impacting on climate change, exasperates even more and more problems. The reason is the way in which we are producing food right now as of today and last 30, 40 years in countries that they, they basically do massive agribusiness and using a lot of chemicals and monoculture type of agriculture. This is a dangerous to climate change, dangerous to ecological balance and also not very helpful because the production of the food doesn't mean that we will be able to access the food. So this means more food is not going to help us, but the food is accessible, available for all, and also not very much under the serious ecological problems that create. That's why I propose this agroecology, but this is not only my proposing. This is around at least last 20 years, many of the environmentalists and the agronomists are really supporting and promoting this type of agriculture. There are technical ways to do that, and many countries, some countries actually, are doing it. This has to be a little bit more general, and I think international communities should give a little bit of a shot to this kind of changing this style of the agriculture, which is friendly to climate change and also friendly to human security. What is your message in the run-up to COP21, the climate change conference in Paris? Well, that message is an important one. First of all, as you know, climate change policy is a climate justice policy because not every people are affected by climate change in an equal manner. So I think the most important thing, climate change diplomacy should really respect the human rights principles, which gives us a justice angle to climate change, making some kind of adjustment in relation to mitigation and adaptation policies. While we are reducing the greenhouse gas emissions, we should not deny local people's right to food and the livelihood. This is the most important message. And that was the UN Special Repertoire on the Right to Food, Hilal Elva, speaking to Christina Silviero from UN Radio. It's exactly 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Onelin Zinti. Tanzania's President-elect John Magufuli to be sworn in on Thursday. A minister in Libya's Tripoli-based government, not recognized by the international community, Mohamed Al-Ghadar, has been kidnapped. And journalists in Togo slam a new provision passed by parliament, which threatens imprisonment for anyone found guilty of flaunting the country's media regulations. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. Africa has approximately 9.6% internet users as of the second quarter of 2015, according to statistics for Africa compiled by Internet World Stats. 
That equates to just over 300 million people having access to the Internet in a continent with a population of more than 1.1 billion. However, social media application Facebook is now pushing the boundaries in trying to connect the world with Africa being one of its main priorities. Oren Singh filed this report. Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg is on a mission to provide free internet services to remote areas within Africa and the rest of the world. Zuckerberg announced early last month that Facebook would provide internet access from space. A new satellite called AMOS-6 will make the web accessible to large parts of West, East and Southern Africa. Zuckerberg says connectivity has the power to create jobs and alleviate poverty and shouldn't only be a privilege for people in the richest of countries. When people are connected, we have the opportunity to get access to jobs, education, health, new kinds of communication. We bring the people that we care about closer to us. And the Internet is how we connect to the modern world. You know, there are all these studies that show that In developing countries, more than 20% of GDP growth is driven by the Internet. There have been studies that show that if we connected a billion more people to the Internet, there would be 100 million more jobs would be created, and more than that would be lifted out of poverty. So there's just this deep belief here at Facebook that technology needs to serve everyone. One of the longest-serving satellite companies in South Africa, Blue Sky Satellite, supports Facebook's Africa initiative. CEO Pedro Camacho says Facebook's satellite would be able to deliver Internet to people by creating hotspots. What Facebook is doing is they're purchasing a satellite, they're launching it, that's going to have uh, spot beams over certain areas along South Africa and the west coast of Africa and east coast of Africa. And this is how the service is going to be delivered to the end users. There will be hotspots created using satellite, which will come down into a rural area, and then a Wi-Fi hotspot will be created to enable users to connect to the Internet using their mobile devices. And they are essentially providing the capacity for people to use the service at a very, very low cost, in some cases, for free. Facebook is leveraging on the fact they will own the satellite and they will monetize the investment through advertising. So does this mean that we can expect free internet across the continent? Well, not exactly free, but not exactly paid for either. This initiative is being undertaken in partnership with a charity Facebook runs called Internet.org. Zuckerberg says the easiest way to describe how this free internet service will work is by comparing it with the emergency number 911. The model that we consider this to be most similar to is 911 in the US. So even if you haven't paid for a phone plan, you can always dial 911 and if you if there's a crime or a health emergency or a fire, you get basic help. And we think that there should be an equivalent of this for the internet as well. Where even if you haven't paid for a data plan, you can always get access to basic health information or education or job tools or basic communication tools, and it'll vary country by country. So for example, when we launched in Zambia, there, you know, HIV is a really big issue, so one of the free services that the government and folks wanted to include were services so you can learn about HIV and learn about different aspects of maternal health. And in different places, there are going to be different tools that are important to include in this kind of 911 for the Internet. Zuckerberg acknowledges that Facebook will make a loss in providing certain areas with free access to the application and other sites. But he admits that in the end, Internet.org is a vital piece of a much larger connectivity puzzle. I'm Aaron Singh in Durban. South Africa's rail transport utility Transnet will be spending about 100 billion rand to upgrade port and cargo handling equipment over the next 10 years. Transnet Port Terminal CEO Carl Sotligwa 
has told the African Ports Evolution Conference in Durban this includes moving manganese exports from Port Elizabeth to the fast-growing Guja port. As cargo operations have become more efficient, Transnet aims to expand to other African countries. This comes as African raw material exports to Asia are expected to continue to grow despite China's economic slowdown. Dries Libenberg reports. Transnet Port Terminal's CEO, Carl Sutriqua, says about 100 billion rand will be spent on upgrading infrastructure at South Africa's ports and cargo terminals over the next 7 to 10 years. Sutriqua has told the African Ports Evolution Conference in Durban this will fund the upgrade of ore handling equipment as well as moving manganese exports from the Port Elizabeth port to Kruger. South Africa exports the highest quality manganese in the world and Transnet wants to expand its export capacity from 5 million tons to 16 million tons a year. So Trikwa has stressed, however, that their focus has changed from throwing money at a problem to delivering the most efficient service possible. We're now moving quite aggressively uh, beyond our own borders. Recently, as TPT, we've won a concession uh, to provide uh, services into one of the uh, port terminals up the west coast uh, of Africa. And our aim and our game is really not to just become a, uh, uh, an efficient terminal operator in South Africa, but to become a, uh, a serious player, firstly, I think, uh, on the uh, African continent, but beyond as well. This comes as Africa's trade with Asia sharply increased since the global economic crisis in 2009, exporting African raw materials and importing consumer goods. Singapore's High Commissioner in South Africa, Chua Tai Kyong, foresees that Asia's trade with Africa will continue to rise despite China's economic slowdown. He says the dip in trade between the two continents last year has already recovered. Tai Kyung says the trade boom is driven by greater political stability in Asia as well as a growing population. Asia has overtaken Europe as Africa's main trading partner. Germany's honorary consul in South Africa, Horst Achtzen, has however pointed out that European countries are looking to export their manufacturing to remain globally competitive. Achtzen says a case in point is Mercedes-Benz manufacturing all their C-Class models in Port Elizabeth and exporting it to the rest of the world. Africa is a sleeping giant. It is a giant that is awakening. It is a giant that is developing very rapidly. Those of you in the audience who are perhaps closer to my age will remember it wasn't too long ago when we didn't hear too much about China. And look where China is today. A sheer volume of people that have developed themselves, that have educated their young, that have stimulated business. The Ghanaian Port Authority's Paul Asare Ansar has outlined the emergence of modern ports in Africa in the 90s due to containerization. While especially private shipping lines helped to develop long-neglected ports, they have also been awarded concessions to manage the ports. Ansar says in many African countries this gave rise to monopolies and profiteering by the concession holders at the expense of the state. Singapore could afford to separate the operations 
from the ownership because all of them get the revenue and put in the same kitty. But in the case of the African ports, there is clear opportunity for capital flight as the concessionaire picks his money and then without any restraint, he can decide to bank all the money in Switzerland or in European ports. Durban Chamber of Commerce and Industry CEO Dumile Kele says the lack of integration of logistics in Africa hampers trade between African countries. She says while there has been significant investment in upgrading rail networks, trade agreements among African countries are not being properly implemented. I am Dries Liebenberg in Durban. The Agricultural Business Chamber in South Africa says crop production is expected to fall below 50%. The chamber says as drought conditions worsen, more and more farmers will battle to produce with dire consequences on food production and pricing in the long run. Commercial farmers in the country's northern Guazul-Natal province say they have not experienced such bad drought in the last 73 years in the province. More from Dr. John Purchase, Chief Executive Officer at the Agricultural Business Chamber. Yes, I think there are two aspects to the drought. It's the past season's drought, what we call the 2014-2015 drought. Our maize crop fell from 14.3 million tons in the previous year to about 9.6, 9.7 million tons this year. So that's a considerable drop in maize production. We consume about 12 million tons, so we now have to import maize to ensure that we can supply the demands and the population with staple foods. Normally we are net exporter of maize, and maize is our biggest crop, and and I'm I'm emphasizing it for that reason also because it's a staple food. Uh, But obviously it eats other crops as well. And we've also had a very severe drought now this, the past winter season, in especially the Swartland area of the Western Cape, which is the biggest wheat-producing area. And then the problem now is that this drought is now going into the next uh, planting season. So we're supposed to be planting maize and, and sorghum and, and soybeans and sunflowers around about now especially in the eastern areas and then a little bit later in the western production areas of South Africa. Now, already in the eastern production areas, we should have uh, been planting or, and should, should finish by the 15th of November. If we don't, then it gets too late to plant. Mm. It's very dry. There have been limited plantings in the eastern areas, and in the western areas, it's extremely dry because there's no uh, residual soil moisture so we need at least around 150 to 200 millimeters of rain so that we have sufficient moisture in the soil to can plant the next crops. Now, we, if you look at the current weather forecast for the next 14 days and then also long-term for the season, because of the El Nino phenomenon in the Pacific Ocean, we are really concerned that we are going to not plant sufficient summer crops this year. And so the effect is that we will probably, for, for a second year, go into a a deficit production. In other words, we'll have to import more. To what extent that will happen is not sure because it can still rain before uh, the planting season is over, especially in the western areas. But at the moment, the situation is pretty dire. Uh, It's it's really bad also for stock farmers because they don't have feed to feed the animals. And what options do we have really to survive this period? Because as the drought um, condition worsened, that will mean that more and more farmers are then battling to produce. What options do we yes. have? 
there are options in the sense that we can import uh, maize, but we must also remember that our whole pricing system works on uh, import parity. Import parity is roughly twice the price of export parity. Normally, we're in export parity situation. That would equate to a price of around 1,500 rand per ton of maize. Import parity is roughly just over 3,000 rand a ton of maize. So you can see where we're going to. So once we have to import a lot of maize, all our maize has to be bought at, a, at what we call import parity pricing, which is nearly double the price of locally produced maize when we have sufficient maize, except that that has an impact directly on, on white maize meal for, for your staple porridges, etc. Maize also forms a huge part of your animal feed industry, in other words, into your broiler uh, or the chicken meat industry and into your dairy industry, into your beef industry, etc. So those industries uh, will be knocked heavily because their cost of production goes up very significantly. Now, the National Council of Provinces um, have adopted a motion by the Democratic Alliance to address potential challenges relating to the drought. What sort of issues, um, you know, as an expert yourself, are you hoping that they could really look into? We welcome the, the, the uh, motion by the National Chamber of Provinces. It's right that government look at this. We also did, however, take note of other government declarations saying that that they can't assist the, the agricultural sector uh, whatsoever in terms of drought relief. Now, that's a little bit short-sighted, but we would need to engage with government on the effects of this drought. We have, in fact, already engaged with mm. the Department of Agriculture, and we warned them that the situation can deteriorate, and it has deteriorated, obviously, because we've had no summer rainfall yet. We are having a meeting with all the producers, small-scale emerging, large-scale commercial producers, just to inform them as to how we see the situation from the agricultural business chamber, in other words, the financials of agriculture and the supply of inputs, etc. We will have to start making plans, mm. uh, contingency plans to survive this drought. That was Dr. John Purchase, Chief Executive Officer at the Agricultural Business Chamber, speaking to Khumuto Mopulane. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Thanks, Balungile. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has approved six new oil and gas exploration contracts for investments worth at least 2.2 billion US dollars. The agreements include the search for oil and gas in the Mediterranean, Nile Delta, Western Desert and the Gulf of Suez. The deals were initially muted at an investment conference in Sharm el-Sheikh earlier this year. The Dubai International Finance Center has been ranked among the top 10 financial centers globally and has embarked on a 10-year growth strategy announced in May 2015. DIFC is opening the door for companies to the entire Middle East Africa and South Asia region to set up offices. Chief Strategy Officer of the Dubai International Finance Center, Shirak Shah. 
I think there's a lot of uh, growth potential in the infrastructure space. Africa needs a lot of infrastructure investments, and investors from around the world are looking at opportunities for long-term investment, and certainly Africa provides that. I believe there's also a strong investment opportunity in other sectors like education, uh, in financial services, definitely, and uh, and also entrepreneurship. So that's why you're seeing a lot of private equity players in, interested in investing in uh, entrepreneurs who are obviously looking forward to uh, exploiting the demographic dividends of Africa and uh, uh, finally consumption-based uh, industries that, that Africa surely has a very strong potential. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa's top leadership will deliberate this weekend whether it is worth continuing to appeal its expulsion from the country's biggest trade union, Kusatu. The Metal Workers Union will be receiving feedback from its provincial structures at its Central Executive Committee meeting in Johannesburg. Numsa was booted out of the Labour Federation a year ago. Deputy Secretary General Karl Gluter. The low point was the July 2015 Special National Congress of Kusatu, uh, where literally the constitution of the federation uh, was completely undermined uh, with respect to how decisions were arrived at. And so um, that was a farce that we think um, has basically alerted us to the fact that uh, there's just no hope in reclaiming Kusatu. Namibia's debt has risen by over 1 billion US dollars this year and will increase by an average of 14% over the next three years as the government looks to ramp up spending on infrastructure to boost growth. The Ministry of Finance says it aims to fund infrastructure undertakings and social investments which can impact positively on the medium to long-term growth, job creation and social progress. Zambia's central bank has raised its benchmark lending rate to a record 15.5% to curb soaring inflation, with nearly, which nearly doubled last month. This as the currency of African copper producer weakened sharply. The rate hike comes amid a sharp steel, steep, steel, steel, sharp fall rather, by the local currency, the Kwaja, brought on by tumbling copper prices as the consumption in top copper consumer China slowed. The Southern African nation kept the key rate unchanged at 12.5% in August. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with swimming news, the South African swimming team concluded the Doha leg of the FINA Airweave Swimming World Cup with an additional two gold, one silver and one bronze medal on Tuesday night. With only one leg to go, Cameron van der Berg showed why he is the current overall rankings leader as he grabbed the gold medal in the 100-meter breaststroke race, clocking in at a time of 59.68 seconds. Chad Close scooped his fourth gold medal of the competition 
This time in the 100-meter butterfly, finishing with a time of 51.44 seconds. Michael Mayer won silver in the 200-meter individual medley in a time of two minutes as well as one second. It was a bronze medal for Douglas Erasmus in the 50-meter freestyle, touching the wall in 22.50 seconds behind Brazil's Bruno Freitas as well as United States' Anthony Irvin. The team will now be heading to Dubai for the final leg of the FINA Airweave Swimming World Cup, which will take place on the 6th and the 7th of November at the Hamdam Sports Complex. On to football news, George Lumwanda Mina is unbeat about Zambia's prospects in the Russia 2018 qualifiers, despite Chipolopola's tight record against opponents Sudan and the World Cup meetings. Zambia faced Sudan over two legs next week in a second-round qualifier for a place in the group stage phase. Chipolopola edged Sudan in World Cup qualifying encounters with three wins and a draw with, um, from six meetings since, since 1968. Zambia Zambia will face Sudan away in the first leg of the 11th of November in Khartoum, and the final leg is scheduled for the 15th of November in Ndola to decide who goes through to the group stage qualifiers. This is the second successive time that the two sides will meet in a World Cup qualifier since the race to Brazil 2014, in which Zambia were awarded three points after an away defeat to Sudan, who fielded a suspended player in the first leg before drawing one all. On to local football news, two goals from George Lebesi and one goal from Bernard Parker was enough to hand Kaiser Chiefs a 3-1 win over Golden Arrows in an APSA Premiership match on Tuesday night at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg. The victory takes Chiefs to a third spot with 17 points from 10 matches, while Gordon, um, Golden Arrows sit at 7th position with 14 points from 9 outings. Chiefs were hurting prior to the game following their first league loss to arch-rivals Orlando Pirates last week Saturday, defeating them 3-1 also at the FNB Stadium. Kaza Chiefs head coach Steve Gombella says this is the comeback they needed. I think it was important for us to, to remove the salt that had been on us and the only way that we, we could do that was tonight. Even though we knew we were coming against an Arrows team that plays good football and my colleague next to me is doing a great job, uh, they, they, they can hurt you on counter-attacks if you're not careful. If you give them space, they will play, and they, they hit from afar. Even the goal they scored today was a result thereof, and we knew that the challenge was not going to be that easy. But based on how we applied ourselves, I must commend the players for bringing their heads. They played more with their heads than their hearts, because at the back of the result that we suffered, we had to find a way to come back, and this will give them at least some night to sleep in preparation for moving forward. Nino Gordonera's head coach, Sarai Melitzoga, gave credit to Kazi Chi's combination play. We made a lot of uh, unforced errors in the beginning of the game. And at this level, we cannot afford to make a lot of unforced errors. We didn't pass the ball well. Uh, we lost a lot of possession in very critical areas of the field. And uh, as a result of that, we could not get our momentum. We could not get the rhythm of the play going in the first half. And secondly, I think we did not close down properly uh, a lot of combination play that Chiefs uh, came up with. And uh, maybe you could also say that uh, they applied a lot of pressure on our players. Uh, from where I was sitting, whenever Kaiser Chiefs lost possession, I had pressure on the ball, pressure on the ball, pressure on the ball, pressure on the ball. Those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Tanzania's President-elect John Magufuli will be sworn in tomorrow as the country's fifth head of state. And the current president of the UN Security Council, optimistic about peace talks between Israel and Palestine. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukhulu, technical producer Sviso Mashekho and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Bayete with Umkaya.